Hit and run. Did you do enough? Leadership material? Yeah, I'm not ruling out. Remind you of anyone? I'll be judged by the results. And there go the guns. People are not happy about that. And welcome to One News Inside Parliament, a weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering this week. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Jessica Much Mackay. And we're going to head straight into our pits and our peaks this week. Jessica, will you kick us off? I will. My peak this week um, is that Benedict Collins is not joining us, and that is not as harsh as it seems. The reason he's not joining us is because he is on paternity leave um, and has welcomed baby Collins into the world. So we're very excited as a team. Um, for him to be going through such a big milestone so it's really exciting so hopefully I'm sure he'll be watching at home because he's you know got so much free time on his hands and keeping an eye on us I think our podcast and our dulcet tones will help get baby off yeah maybe the white noise (laughs) yeah will help her I think it'll be good Um, but my pit this week was definitely covering the Northland um, vaccine investigation. It was um, quite a complex story with lots of layers about um, with Farmac and the Ministry of Health and the Minister and who knew what when. And it wasn't so much the story because I think it's a very worthy, important story. But it was just there was so it was such a dense story and quite hard to distill down. And it was one of those days that you think, oh, I'd quite like to be a print reporter today or be able to tell a seven-minute-long news story. Um, so I think that was my my challenge this week for yes. sure. It is harder than people may think to squeeze a lot of info into a one minute yeah. 40 track. What, what we do, it's tough what we do, <laughs> just as long as Feel everyone appreciates it. Yeah. <laughs> um, my peak this week has to be Andrew Little's announcement um, that the government will allow at, the, at next year's election um, same day uh, enrolments to vote on election day. So interesting. So interesting and it's a big move. Um, it's going to impact um, a, a a lot of people. Um, I think uh, in the last election we had about 19,000 votes that were cast but not counted because they were not enrolled properly. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a big deal. It's going to make um, democracy a lot better. National isn't happy about it. Nick Smith kicking up a fuss. And he does on one hand have a valid point in that um, this decision hasn't been taken to select committee. Um, Andrew Little hitting back at that saying that actually Nick Smith is the one who's um, really uh, holding things up at at that select committee and so they just wanted to get this done because it is about democracy. Um, On the other hand too, uh, Nick Smith is pushing an argument that same day enrolments on election day benefits mostly um, left-leaning parties and I think that's quite petty. I think that um, a democracy outweighs um, any of that sort of thing. At the end of the day, it's about getting people's voices to be heard for their vote of who is representing them here. And I think that usually, yep, you're right, it goes through um, it goes through the process with electoral reform, but in this case, I think that to get more people being able to cast their vote is the most important overriding thing. So it's a really interesting issue. Another interesting point, just on that, just for your uh, for your interest as as those listening to us, you'll be able to cast your vote at the supermarket <laughs> as of next year. So that might be a bit handy for all of those whipping out to get their uh, corn chips before the big uh, watch on One News that election night. And what was your peak this week? Uh, my peak or my pit was... Oh, your pit, sorry. <laughs> yeah, your pit this week. Was, uh, has to go to Children's Minister Tracy Martin in this following 
follows on from the uh, Oranga Tamariki stories uh, in relation to child uplifts and the huge public um, outcry about that. We've seen three investigations launched, notwithstanding Oranga Tamariki's own internal one, but also we've got the Children's Commissioner Andrew Beecroft looking into it and also the Chief Ombudsman uh, Peter Bosher looking into it as well. Following that, I asked Tracy Martin if she thought that the public has lost confidence in Oranga Tamariki, to which she replied, no, because we have a number of people dropping off cakes and sausage rolls to our offices. So I don't know that that would have gone down too well, uh, given the sensitivities and just the huge amount of public interest in the story to come back with an answer like that. Don't think that washed pr- quite well uh, with the public uh, or with listeners. So those are my pits and my peaks. You've also been kept very busy this week um, with various stories. And the first one we're going to take a look at today is on Operation Burnham. The book Hit and Run, lifting the lid on a 2010 raid by New Zealand's SAS in Afghanistan, alleged to have killed six civilians, injuring 15 others. Allegations the New Zealand Defence Force denies. But almost two years later, a major bombshell. Contrary to the book, it's believed insurgents were in one of the villages when the raid happened. If I'm misled by people, That is certainly unfortunate. It certainly is something that is very frustrating to any journalist. The news comes as a government inquiry into Operation Burnham is well underway at a cost of $7 million. But the authors say investigating events in another country with such high security factors isn't simple. Contacting members of the Taliban is not like dialing dominoes and ordering a pizza off the menu. It is a very laborious process. Many people aren't capable of making those connections. Did you do enough to address the question of whether or not there were insurgents there? Oh yeah. You can only use the sources you've got and we questioned and questioned and questioned the villagers concerned, asking them are you sure there were no insurgents there? The Defence Force said they were looking for insurgents and they said no. The lawyer for the Afghan villagers says despite the new information, what hasn't changed is the 21 civilian casualties. The focus should always be, in my view, on the six civilians who were killed and the 15 who were seriously injured. That's where the focus should be. That's where the questions should be um, focused. In a statement to One News, a spokesperson for the inquiry said the presence of insurgents during the raid is important and while it has information on that, it's also happy to receive transcripts of the interviews done by John Stevenson with the two insurgent leaders. It's the second bombshell this week for Operation Burnham. The Afghan villagers announcing their withdrawal from the inquiry earlier this week, citing a lack of confidence. So two big revelations um, coming out in relation to Operation Burnham this week. The first earlier this week was that withdrawal um, from the Afghan villages from the entire inquiry process. And we've seen the slow build-up of the frustration and the tension um, that they have had Um, since the beginning really of this inquiry and I've sort of spoken about and touched on you know uh, this uh, throughout our podcast but you know talking about the tardiness um, from the New Zealand Defence Force to get information um, to the lawyer for the villagers um, concerns around costs and and getting um, uh, the interviews and the evidence um, from those who are based over in Afghanistan. Um, all of those things, obviously, it's been building up and um, the result is that they've pulled out. 
um, the inquiry of course coming back saying they're still confident that they can get to the truth of what happened and another big piece of that puzzle also revealed just yesterday um, when John Stevenson one of the co-authors of the book Hit and Run which sparked this whole seven million dollar government inquiry uh, revealed that he has actually been um, in contact with and has um, uh, transcripts of interviews that he has done with two um, leaders, um, uh, insurgents who were based at one of the villages during the raid, and that changes everything um, because there has, you know, always been um, the argument that um, it was only civilians um, at these villages. I have to note that in the book Hit and Run, um, the authors did did um, make reference to the fact that this these villages were targeted because they were the homes of insurgents, um, but it was always believed that those insurgents were not present um, during the night of the raid. In fact, it seems as though two of them and their bodyguards were. Um, so it's a real game changer. Um, and uh, uh, the inquiry leads um, have acknowledged that they've said they're happy to receive the transcripts from John Stevenson in regards to those interviews and they will just carry on and it will be very interesting to see what happens at the end of this. And, and you've been covering this um, for in, in an in-depth way as well. I think for, for most of us over the years in politics, the story has come in and out of the limelight and, and we've covered it, but you've been sitting into in the, some of those inquiries um, for days on end. We lose Mikey and she's over at a um, Burnham inquiry studying there, taking notes. So you do get into the minutiae of it. And I think that what what is important to get across in the story as well is that it's not like when we do a normal story and you think, oh, I better double check that. I'll just pick them up and give them a call. You're dealing with really complex communication, cultural sensitivities, um, isolation geographically, and building up. And I think John Stevenson made that point yesterday um, in, in your interview with him that it's not it's not an easy situation to get the truth out of, and it's not an easy situation to be able to paint a picture of because because of all these complexities around it. So I do think that this is this is a big moment in this in the story that's gone on for the last few years. And I think um, the fact that he's come out and, and presented that to us today does change things and, and obviously will shape um, how they play out in the future as well. And there's no denying that for those uh, involved, there is a lot at stake in this inquiry. You've got John Stevenson, Nikki Hager, two um, you know, very much respected journalists uh, and investigative at that. Um, and you know, these are big allegations and the New Zealand Defence Force has come under huge scrutiny because of it. We've, we've got the $7 million government inquiry and it's head um, by two um, you know, well-respected um, uh, minds and academics, um, Sir Arnold Terence and Sir Geoffrey Palmer. Uh, so there's a lot at stake here. So the pressure is high, um, and you know you could sort of see a little bit of that tension um, when we first heard um, John Stevenson. Uh, I think it was his first interview. It was on Morning Report, um, and what came across to me was that he was asked whether um, he had uh, revealed uh, the fact that you know he had obviously been in contact and, and had um, gotten these interviews with the insurgents, whether he had revealed that to his co-author Nikki Haga and also to the lawyer of the villagers Deborah Manning to which he replied no he hadn't which is quite telling um, and then the follow-up question to that was does that mean there's a breakdown in that relationship and he said he didn't want to get into that 
And so those are some of the tensions that you can read into the background just based on those small answers. Um, so like I said, lots at stake and um, this is, is you know huge information that's come out. But um, uh, just to reinforce, uh, Nikki Hager and both Deborah Manning um, obviously saying that none of that changes the key um, fact of this whole matter, which is that 21 civilian casualties occurred, six people killed, 15 injured. Um, and that's what um, the inquiry is looking to get to the truth of. Yeah, and another interesting topic, just to segue off that we've had this week, that's been a big dominating um, story for yesterday, but we also had some changes that may be coming up for the National Party, um, with Christopher Luxon resigning from Air New Zealand. And there's been a bit of chatter around this place about him perhaps coming to join the National Party. So take a look at this. Here's Christopher Luxon promoting the Air New Zealand Dreamliner, but it's his career aspirations making news. Politics is something that I'm, yeah, I'm not ruling out. He has to stay apolitical until he leaves Air New Zealand on the 25th of September. But this is what's called laying the groundwork for a future in politics. I'm interested in how do we solve the infrastructure crisis. I'm passionate about human trafficking. We've got a big challenge around the future of work. He says he's a national man. He's not a party member yet, so would he be welcome? National sees itself as a place for talent, um, as the most popular party. There's a lot of interest in it, and it's good possibly maybe there's some interest from him too. Mr Luxon chairs the Business Advisory Council reporting to the Prime Minister. But she's okay with him staying on until September. I'm quite happy um, for Chris to stay in that role. The married father of two has been labelled socially liberal with a strong interest in the environment. Several insiders say he's prime ministerial material. Oh, look, I mean, yeah, everyone's getting a bit ahead of themselves, I'd say. And political opponents have been quick to clamber on that too. The uh, National Party president's behind this. He's very concerned about the 2026 election. I predict that Judith Collins will now need to make a move because he will have expectations of being the new leader. I can see why the National Party are excited. Finally, someone with some leadership attributes would be coming into the party. And the independent MP can relax a little after Mr Luxon had this to say about standing in his botany seat. There's no plan to run in botany, I can tell you that right now. So how does he think National is doing? Come and talk to me at the end of the year on that. Choosing his words carefully, even before entering the world of politics. I have to say I had such fun doing this story yesterday. It's just the pure politics of it. And you have this one little moving part and then the ripple effect of everything else. So I really enjoyed um, talking to people about it and sort of having a bit of a political gossip with lots of <laughs> insiders as well. I think what you've got to break down with this, and I think we, you could see that, is that he would be a really good get for the National Party. He's successful. He's been overseas um, for 16 years. He's been in New York. He came back for this Air New Zealand job. He's keen to stay here. He's obviously um, a very good communicator. I think we saw that there. And he's he's still pretty young, 48. Um, he's got a future ahead of him and what he decides to do. And, I mean, it's not rocket science. Take a look at the language there. Why would you do those rounds of media interviews if you weren't um, paving the way for something? So I think not only am I getting that from sources that I'm talking to inside the party, but also um, I think you can read between the lines. Um, he, that, that is what we call a sales pitch for a future job in politics. And um, I think he did, did a good job of it. Um, and I think that... What we then see is if he, first of all, 
let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Um, he'll have to join the party first. He has to wait till after September to do that. Um, once he joins the party, then he can either get selected onto the list if that's what he wants to do, or um, or if that's what the party wants to do, or go and stand in an electorate seat. So it'll be really interesting to see how all of this plays out and maybe interesting for Mr Bridges as well. <laughs> I know, very interesting for Mr Bridges because obviously you've, like you say, you've got a high fly. This is always really exciting, um, you know, when you're in Parliament and you get whiff of someone who's so high profile, very much um, capable, skilled, etc, etc. Um, all of the capabilities that you need um, in an MP and he's coming in, um, you know, ready to hit the ground running. And so, of course, that would be nerve-wracking for the likes of Simon Bridges. Um, Christopher Luxon uh, stepping down from his role with Air New Zealand in September, coming in before Christmas. I mean, if, if the polls don't go well for Simon Bridges, and, and uh, you could argue that it would be too quick anyway for him to be elevated to a leadership position, but in saying that, he, like we say, he's got a proven track record outside of Parliament. He has backing from high-profile uh, National Party members like Sir John Key, like Murray McCulley, um, and so if he did, did come into that role at the start of the year, it would give him a good run-up to the election um, come the end of next year. Um, and when you've got someone so skilled etc and who doesn't have political baggage which could be an advantage for him um, as opposed to the likes of Judith Collins who we know there's a faction within the party who isn't that keen on her um, then it might give him a smoother run-up um, and you know uh, look at when we're looking at um, what the public how the public might react to him as voters, you only have to point to the fact that he's um, the boss of Air New Zealand and um, uh, the public um, uh, happiness or um, you know consumer satisfaction with Air New Zealand is quite high. They may correlate that um, with the guy who's been in charge of it for the last seven years. It could work in his favour. So it's that, that makes it exciting for us here at Parliament <laughs> um, and anyone who's interested in politics. And I think the thing is, is it's not an immediate problem for Simon Bridges and that's what we've got to remember because he first of all this year needs to play out and next year obviously is election year. Let's say that Christopher Luxon comes into Parliament. Let's play that game. Now if National win then Simon Bridges um, all at the moment with the plan and him leadership becomes Prime Minister. Then you've got someone Christopher Luxon waiting in the wings to be um, the next leader after that. If they come in and National does not win, then usually you would change the leader, leader then, and then you've either got um, perhaps a Judith Collins or however it plays out, but then you've still got that person waiting in the wings. But I actually think that it will be good for na National voters will feel positive about this, because even if they don't love Simon Bridges and they don't love Judith Collins, they think, yeah, yeah, I will give my vote to National still, because this guy's waiting around, and even if those guys do it for a couple of years, then they've got people like this um, who can step in to it. And I and I think we've got to remember as well, like, he's, he's a high flyer, he will be earning the big bucks as the CEO of Air New Zealand. He could go and do a corporate job overseas or do one here and sit back. It is a public service, the guys in this place. We give them a hard time, so most days you wouldn't know it that we feel this way. But you come, especially from the business world, a lot of MPs in this place take major pay cuts to come and do this because they feel like they can make a change and make a difference. And I think that um, 
for he's he's a good example of what lots of other people have done before him and and perhaps John Key is a good example of that and that maybe that takes us very nicely to our next segue so let's take a look at our historic track on that one new car one new candidate hey Tommy how's it going Nationals new broom oh look yeah I think it's each a very positive label one old hammer one old candidate am I an old broom (laughs) I'm an experienced old broom Experience failed to save the local man's political career against an outsider. And I worked incredibly hard over a three-month period to convince people that I was the right candidate. You know, if people are going to push at me, please expect to be pushed back. Brian Neeson's fighting back as an independent against his old party's candidate. Well, if they've got a strong personal following, they sometimes have a real chance, and Jim Anderton proved that in Wigram, and Winston Peters proved it in Tauranga. Uh, But I think it's unlikely that Brian Neeson has got quite that sort of following. There's a lot of capital expenditure going on in these farms. So Controversy is not confined to party selection. John Key's a townie who made a fortune as a merchant banker. The, the way that I made money, that was a byproduct of success in my commercial career. I mean, that was uh, uh, the recognition for a job well done. He's spending some of it, reportedly $5 million or more, on this luxury home 20 kilometres from the Helensville electorate. I don't think I will get judged terribly by constituents on that. I think I'll be judged by the results I deliver. So what I think is really interesting is using John Key as an example. So he came, he went away and um, made all this money, came back to New Zealand. Now, when he came back, he wasn't known to the public. No one knew who this John Key guy was. Um, I think that's different with Christopher Luxon. He's had a high-profile job at Air New Zealand. He's a household name. He's been back here for seven years building that, so I think that's different. John Key came in. He did six years um, before he became Prime Minister. That's the fastest in in modern political history. Um, Don't forget Jacinda Ardern. Yes, she rose up to the ranks, but she hadn't been around in Parliament for a long time. So I think you have to do your time. You can't think that what happens in the corporate world um, and come in and be like, yeah, I'm going to be instantly be great at this and become a politician um, and become a leader. You you can't. You've got to learn the system. You've got to, It's like going back, I was going to say third form, but that makes me sound really old because what is it yet now? Year 11, year 10? <laughs> Scarlett, what year is it? I third form? Uh, it was third form in my time I too, Scarlett, so I'm she's not 20, sure. so I expect her to know that. But yeah. it's like going back to third, year eight? No. Nine, year nine. So it's like going back to year nine. <laughs> yeah, like going back to year nine. And you basically have to start again. Now, you can go to seventh form really, really quickly. So I don't think he needs to wait for six years, but he needs to do a bit. And if he could do a couple of years in opposition as as an, a backbench MP and then as a leader, I think that would be really good. But I think you've got to remember that this isn't this is a new skill set for anyone coming into politics. And it's interesting too, let's not forget that Christopher Luxon is also the chair of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council. Mm. So he's no doubt been privy to a lot of the information and, and, and will now be quite au fait with the issues and he's mentioned infrastructure as being one of the big problems that we're facing as a country and he's, and he's saying, you know, we're, we're acting like we've still got a population of uh, three million and only a million tourists coming in each year, you know, we, we uh, 
must be too narrow, etc. Um, the other interesting thing that is that he's involved in human trafficking through the Tear Fund, so he's mm. also interested in that, and that's that's quite different. Apparently I haven't heard much of that. His um, one of his um, daughters, I think it is, um, is quite he, involved. He did in mention that. Yeah. it was the family. Eh? Yeah. So those are some new elements. He also doesn't drink, which should be a huge change to the folk <laughs> around here. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but I, I thought that was really interesting because Hayley um, Holt asked him about that on breakfast, and in, in the context of the air. Uh, of the ANZ boss who'd stored his wine and she did, you know, she kind of quipped with him that, oh, you won't be storing any wine, will you? And he was like, oh, no, I'm not resigning for that and actually I don't drink. And in the interview later that Paul Hobbs did with him, one of the questions I wanted to know was, I'm just quite interested in why you don't. And he, he simply said that, you know, look, I've, I've seen the effects of alcohol and I'm just not really that interested in it. And, you know, he probably works very long hours and all of that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to see that, to see that side of things, and I, it was interesting to see that um, a few more details, I guess, a bit more of an insight mm. with him. But um, I'm not sure how we segue from alcohol to guns, but I mean, they seem to They're kind a of deadly match. mix. There, there you go. <laughs> and here is Gia Garrick's track on gun laws. After years of failed attempts at gun reform, the horrific events of March 15th spurred the government to announce sweeping new laws, including a buyback scheme. Now it's revealed how much it'll pay owners. Police sought independent advice from KPMG to develop a price list, and KPMG consulted farmers, hunters, dealers, auctioneers and gun clubs. They went out to industry and they've done their best to assemble what we think is the complete fleet of firearms that are covered by the prohibition. A rifle like this one's worth three and a half thousand dollars. Owners will get almost that if it's new, but just over two thousand four hundred dollars if it's in used condition. While the owner of a shotgun worth three thousand dollars might claw back two thousand eight hundred dollars if it's new, but just over two thousand dollars if it's not. Gun owners say the government promised full market price. It is an unfair compensation package. You know, we're talking thousands of dollars being out here. And of course there's parts as well, you know, that most of the parts are brand new parts that have never been used. Government have said we're going to offer 70% or less. People are not happy about that. To see those prices discounted after there was uh, financial agreement by the government's advisers is, is a huge disappointment. Police will hold community events where guns can be handed in, the first in Hagley Park in Christchurch. Specially trained teams will assess weapons and check firearms licences, and armed police will be on hand should anything go wrong. The firearm will be significantly disabled at the collection point, um, and then it will go through a, a second layered process to make sure that it's absolutely destroyed beyond recognition. And police have asked dealerships like Gun City to be collection points. The extra $40 million announced today comes from ACC. It takes the total compensation to $200 million. But gun owners maintain that despite the discounted prices, it'll cost closer to a billion. As this uh, process develops, if more money is needed, that money will be found. There are more than 300 different guns on the government's price list, but it still has no idea how many will be handed in. What I'm really interested in this is we know that they're going to have this... Oh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. I'll just start again. I'm very sorry. Three, two, one. 
So we've been told that the minister, by the minister's office, that they're going to have this kind of collection point. So it's going to be the first one, I think it's called a community collection or something like that, and it's going to be at Trentham. And basically any gun owners in the Wellington area will come along and and hand over their guns and and then they'll transfer the money, et cetera, et cetera. But what I just... In my mind, I find fascinating this idea that you're going to have queues of people driving up and having their guns, lining up in a little queue, handing them over, putting them into a pile, perhaps in the back of a truck, or like just that whole image to me seems so foreign and so un-New Zealandy. Because then you've got the situation of so you've got all these people handing over their guns, maybe not all of them completely willingly. So then what do you do? Do do you have um? AOS there to protect, do you have the army there to help out? And I just think that this, I'm very excited to see how this will all play out because I just think the pictures and the visuals, and maybe this is my <laughs> and that, TV no, mind. That's exactly, <laughs> that's all I can think about is great pics. Yeah, for, and just for think a of, story. and remember with the Australian example, they we had these images of these um, trucks piled high with guns and we're just going to see that again and I think, um, spot the television reporters, but just <laughs> the aesthetic of that I think is going to be really really interesting um, So it'll be, and, and they're going to do that all around New Zealand of course as well, so I do think it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out but it's been pretty speedy, you know we're not that far from March 15th and, and we'll have these collection things happening in July so I think it's going to be interesting. And another interesting point is obviously around the price that the government um, is willing to pay um, to to receive these these firearms back. And we've heard, and 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 I think it was always going to it was always to be expected, right? Um, you know, people saying actually I'm not happy with the price that's been set um, or the levels and and the methodology behind it. Um, I feel like I'm some people claiming that they're going to lose out on thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, Stuart Nash, though, saying, and I and I and I and I sort of agree with him, saying that they they feel like they've got it about right. And then if um, you know an individual still isn't happy with the way in which their firearm has been priced, then they can get that independently assessed. Obviously, they'll have to pay for that themselves. It's about one hundred and fifty dollars, um, but they'll be able to get that independently assessed themselves. I think it was one twenty, I think it was one twenty yeah. so to see whether ballpark. it's it's around mm. um, the right price mark and. Um, uh, interesting to hear um, a question put to um, Stuart Nash this morning and, and basically um, saying, you know, one guy says, you know, what if he, he's going to be unhappy with the price set? He's just going to wrap his gun up and bury it in the ground. And I just thought, for goodness sake, um, it's getting a bit ridiculous like there. So, um, and, and it has to come back to this. When we're talking about, you know, we've changed the law and we all know why and it's for, you know, the government will say it's for the for public safety it's for for um, uh, you know us as a society we don't want these firearms um, that are largely only good for killing people um, being circulated anymore then then there has to be some give and take I feel and I think if you liken it to the Public Works Act and the taking of um, you know slices of your land in order to widen the road etc no one's ever happy with the price that they get set um, by the transport agency um, to, to buy that you, you can't please I guess is my point you can't please everyone all the time but I think a 95% and a 70% um, mark is is it's not as bad as I, I, I was expecting. 
Well, that maybe gives us a nice little segue from unhappy people to perhaps one happy person because it's her birthday today. And Scarlett <laughs> is our gallery camera operator. And um, do you want to just take off the cans and just come and stand over here for just one moment this is Scarlett's worst nightmare just let, filling you all in but it is her birthday today and she works incredibly hard for her um come stand in here okay. so you can get a nice yeah. little shot and Bend Adam it, it, it. Oh my gosh Adam's done such a good job look at the cake um <laughs> so Adam has a cake for her Yay. and we won't sing because I don't think anyone needs to should we just say happy birthday Scarlett and blow out a candle and make a wish okay. and don't make it anything about not working quite so hard okay. <laughs> 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 try, try again <laughs> yay. yay good job do you want to get have a go at reading the outro for us Give it a whirl. Go on, it'll <laughs> no. be a good skill. You don't want to? Okay. So this was our One News Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. It's a- available around this time every week on One News Now, One News Facebook page. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. See you guys next week. Yeah.